I actually did this TBO interview once where I, I never wear makeup, so they gave me uh, lipstick. Oh dear. And I gestured like this, and it was a live production, so I smeared it right across my face, so they had to keep the camera on this side <laughs> the entire time. That's great. <laughs> Which was, That's awesome. That's yeah. totally what I would do. <laughs> I'm Todd Lyons. I'm Natalie Crandall. And I'm Yuta Tabranus. And this is the Innovate On Demand podcast. Welcome. Welcome, Utah. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and what brings you to Innovate On Demand today? I'm the director of something called the Inclusive Design Research Center, which I began back in 1993 with the beginning of the web. And our primary purpose, vision, and mission is to ensure that emerging technologies and their associated practices are inclusive of everyone. So especially individuals that are often left at the margins or that are um, excluded due to various barriers or unanticipated bias or any number of reasons. That's fascinating. I, and that's the, partly why I'm here today. Uh, I'm also a member of the Digital Academy. I'm one ah. of the external fellows. Ah. So, and I think I was brought in specifically to look at inclusive design. I've uh, established a framework for inclusive design that, um, unlike accessibility begins right at the beginning, is not seen as a gatekeeping uh, function, and I've used this framework to um, help to transform a number of organizations and industries, uh, such as Microsoft and and others. And so, this is uh, in part, I think, why I'm here. You've been working on this sort of work for maybe your entire career. Yeah, I, I started was, back in '79. Because yeah. I was reading something to the effect that that even as far back as the Apple II, the VIC-20, the Commodore 64, you've been trying to make these sorts of devices like accessible. So I'm fascinated over such a long period of time, like how well you think we're doing compared to to back in the '70s. But uh, yeah, I can talk, I can you, talk a little bit about that. Sure, and you're right that um, when the first personal computers came out, I had been working with a number of people that were facing barriers to writing, speaking, um, participating in uh, a, a university. And I thought, ah, here are wonderful translation devices that we can use so that whatever means you have of controlling something can be interpreted into something that can be used or that, that you can use to control things. Whatever means you have to sense something can be translated. And back then, I, I mean, it was a very sort of techno-triumphalist time yeah. where we were imagining that the, these things would continuously progress and make things better and better and better all the time. And it was very much a skunk works period. You could uh, take that. off the cover of a CPU and um, simply interrupt where the keyboard goes in, etc. So it was much more of a, I guess, do-it-yourself hacker, bottom-up, mm-hmm. um, let's fix it uh, type of culture and and opportunity at the time. Love it. Um, I mean, I used to fix my own cars, but now it's so complex and lots of black boxes and lots of things that are no longer tamperable, but, but I, I can't hack things quite as much. And the same thing has happened with uh, computing systems. Yeah. 
It's interesting because when you first started introducing yourself and what you're doing, my brain was firing on so many different notes. I was like, really? You guys started in 93, like, as you said, right sort of when the internet was coming out. And so how has that progressed? Like, have we succeeded in actually bringing some of these uh, perspectives into, as you say, that initial design and not coming out at the end to make sure that that uh, the usability is accessible, but that the whole process is accessible? Is that... In my naive days, I thought things were just going to get better and better and better. But there have been these cycles where things have gotten somewhat worse. And I think there's so many opportunities and so many risks associated with this particular domain of incorporating technology and incorporating, especially at this conference where we're talking about data and and AI and machine learning. Uh, And I, I think we're missing a really great opportunity. Why the web was so successful, why it was adopted and became much more than we, even the individuals that were involved right at the beginning thought would be possible, was in large part because there was involvement of individuals that had very, very compelling uses for it, but also would likely be the ones that would experience the greatest risk with it. And that's um, the people that Richard Koch or... Pareto would call the difficult 20%. Right. Those people that usually markets don't um, actually try to address because they're so different. There's no economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we started the W3C, we made a very conscious effort to actually include those individuals because they were not able to use the systems before. So they had much more compelling reasons to use the web. And that caused the web to stretch and adopt a structure that would be much more adaptable and dynamically resilient. Mm. Um, but um, I that's think that's, of course, things changed and things got locked up and the web was used for things like popularity metrics and things of that nature. Um, and that then skewed it again towards the average, the typical, the popular, the as opposed the to the 80%, yeah. There's been a progression and then two steps forward, one step back with respect to actually using the potential of people that are diverse. So one thing I've noticed, there's a whole conversation that's happening now in the public service around those perspectives. I feel like accessibility conversations in the past to me always sounded like, how do we make sure we can include these people? Because it's not fair for not everyone to have access. And the articulation I'm hearing today is something that to me feels much more empowering. It's about everyone got all of these things to offer. And how do we make sure we can put all of those things on the table? Yeah. Right. As a society to me is like, and, and that it feels different. Yeah. And it feels like if that's our ultimate goal, uh, then then it, it might empower us to to design and build things differently. Right, and especially in the public sector, where yeah. it, it isn't that we want a very quick win. We don't want to have this. Um, they get the low hanging fruit and the and then sell out. That's right. Um, the intention. I mean, it, it's our responsibility and intention to serve the entire populace, the entire citizenry. And so, yes, um, the previous way of looking at accessibility certainly has been as a gatekeeping, mm-hmm. uh, a um, legal risk issues. Uh, 
where there is an evaluation done of something before it can be released, which is the wrong time to do it. You have to do it right at the beginning. And especially if we're talking about digital systems and not um, built environment or industrial system where we can retrofit, but digital systems morph, they change. Mm -hmm. And once the genie's out of the box, it's, all, it's impossible to retrofit. So the time to think about it is right at the beginning, even if you're only thinking about a, a legal risk issue. Right. But um, that means that we completely miss out on the opportunity. Uh, we don't need monocultures. We don't... That's right. Um, we need diversity. Diversity is an asset. It gives us different perspectives. It allows us to detect the weak signals. It, it's the impetus for innovation. And the people that can't use or have difficulty using your current designs are the ones that are going to prompt you to, to innovate the most. So, yeah, yeah, and I mean, and people have such a, a richness of, of value of perspective and work that they can bring to the table. It's how do we get to the point where we can access all of it, right? right? Where, exactly. where we yeah. don't accept yeah. that there are these obstacles that mean that this person isn't able to contribute in a meaningful way. Right. Yeah. Like we have to be able to, to figure those out. So would you say that there's a hopeful period with with the onset of of this whole concept of digital and transformation coming back to this being a very, you know, human and user centered thing, uh, yeah. and it's not it's not supposed to be about the technology. It's supposed to be how the people will use right. That Although technology. I, we're th there's some fundamental things we need to unlearn. Uh, mm -hmm. We're inheriting uh, a whole range of of different mind frames that are that are not conducive to actually taking advantage of the diversity of perspectives and talents and skills yeah. that are there. Artificial intelligence, let's say, is based upon statistical methods, statistical analysis, which of course means the average, the typical, the majority rules, the data systems and are based upon determining in a probabilistic or predictive way mm -hmm. what's going to work for the majority. Well, then what happens to the minority? Yeah. So we need to rethink not just, I mean, that goes way back to just research in general and research practice mm -hmm. and what what are the chosen or the the respected means of research? Um, we so that all needs to be deconstructed to some extent. The, the notion that there is an average or a typical person, the notion that um, it's the top of the bell curve that is the sweet spot that we need to reach, as opposed to the the edges or the the full spectrum. Yeah, and then. Business practices as well. I mean, markets. Uh, we still talk about scaling and scaling as a formulaic replication of whatever happens to be the winning design. We talk about winning, optimal, best. Well, that's not actually conducive to diversity either because then we're choosing one above all others as opposed to what's the range of choices that we need, what's mm. the range or the spectrum of the design considerations we need to include in, in whatever structure we create. So a lot of the fundamental underlying things that are largely unconscious and are so baked into our processes need to be rethought. Um, yeah. But the, the benefits are huge. I mean, we, we're living in so many crises at the moment. Um, there is such great disparity. Uh, and 
if we want to address the disparity, if we want to have a system that can have a more of a 360-degree perspective on detecting where things are going, I mean, in terms of prediction, in terms of the innovation we need, all of those are helped by having diverse perspectives, lived experience of of complexity Mm -hmm. um, and One of the other things, of course, all of our systems tend to try to reduce things to get rid of the complexity, to find the answer. Um, It's either a binary choice or it's a winning choice. And that's not the reality at the moment. And Mm -hmm. it means that we have all these blind spots. Uh, So... Yes, we, (laughs) it's a good time, but boy, do we have a lot of work to do. I bet. So what would you say to yourself 25 years ago when you first embarked on this? Uh, I'd be, what would be the biggest thing that was going to change in those 25 years? You talked a lot about one step forward, one step back, that one of the, one of the forward steps that you think is, is, is actually along the right, the right path, if you will. Yeah. Um, I, I think there is a step away probably from some of the silos that uh, there, there's a greater respect for the individuals that cross all of the disciplines because the, the, the goal that I have has an economics perspective. It has a, a statistics perspective. Mm-hmm. It, so it's so diffuse. So it, even that question, choosing one thing, um, is, is sort of illustrative of, um, we're frequently given these, these limited choices, limited time. And what, what my field is complex and it's dispersed and it's diffuse and there isn't sort of a single answer. It's a very complex and interconnected and entangled answer. So my answer is going to be, <laughs> um, multi-perspectival as well. Very interesting. It is, uh, it's definitely a complex issue. And it's probably getting more complex and not less complex as technology changes and the amount of data that we have explodes. And Right. But um, I think where it gets less complex is at the deeper commonalities, just from a process perspective, by virtue of making room for listening to supporting diverse perspectives, you then find the deeper commonalities and and those those tend to be quite fundamental and and simple. Do you have any uh a thing you would like to talk about maybe as being one of the external fellows for the Digital Academy and what uh, what that role means for you and Yeah, um the challenge that I put to myself and that was one of the things that was asked of the external fellows, what's the project you want to work on? Mm-hmm. And so one of the projects I've set for myself is to look at what happens to outliers and small minorities in artificial intelligence and automated decision making. So, um, the issue with data at the moment, and we're at a data conference is that Often the risks that are associated with data and those outliers and small minorities are not large enough that people actually pay attention to them or that the warning bells go off. And because there's not large enough numbers that are facing that risk, but they can be quite critical. And on the other end, the impact, especially if we're instituting evidence-based medicine, uh, not <laughs> evidence-based governance, then, I mean, evidence-based medicine is another example <laughs> of it, but evidence-based governance is that the impact, um, because what we're, how we're assessing impact is by saying, um, what's the single measure that 
has the largest impact and that's on the largest group or the large, the largest number. And of course, that assessment is usually requires a homogenous group and people that are at the edges are not, are very different from each other. And mm -hmm. so, um, the impact is often not large enough for government investment in those particular measures or, or issues. Yeah. So what I'm looking at is how do we, um, A, ensure that the individuals that are small minorities and outliers are not excluded, yeah. but then also there is such huge potential there to actually create a system that is much more adaptable, extensible. We, um, we did an assessment of services that were designed for the 100% versus services that were designed for the 80% with the 20% left to later or um, as an additional measure, a segregated separate measure. And the, the cost, if you do the second where you leave out the 20%, the difficult 20% as they're called, until um, later is it over a, a five year period tends to be much more expensive because you have lots of requests for changes for things you didn't anticipate the training, the, the bug yeah. reports, the help, the change management for the, the change management. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it looks like one of those houses with lots of things patched on and at yeah. the end of life is reached fairly quickly as where if right from the beginning, you take a little bit more time, maybe a little bit more cost investment, and you actually create a system or a foundational structure that works for the 100%, then you're going to have much more resilience, adapt, adaptability, and flexibility. flexibility. Uh, you'll have lower costs in terms of help and training and, yeah, yeah, change management and all of those things, yes. Wonderful. So I'm trying to think um, specific to this audience. So most of my examples are, well... Uh, I've been doing a lot of work in just because the provincial governments are are moving ahead much more quickly in mm. actual automated decisions. So one mm. is in health, one is in transportation, et cetera. You know, obviously it's a big topic of conversation these days. And there's some some sides of the AI that I I can totally just feel very comfortable with. I think about robotic process automation, right? Yeah. I think that's you know, in, in, in terms, in the AI world, it's pretty low risk. It's, you know, just how do, how do we become more efficient? Well, actually, but, efficiency and optimization is, is a topic that I, I would like to target as well, because certainly, um, work surveillance and those sorts of things. Say if you have a service, a call service center and yeah. you, uh, are, gathering metrics regarding efficiency and the metric is how many calls do you, process within mm. a period of time, you're going to probably ignore the difficult ones, right? Because you want to optimize your performance. And so that the sort of efficiency optimization is that, and that, and that happens everywhere, right? Like yeah, that's exactly. a, I, I read an article about that actually specifically related to the Phoenix pay system. Yeah. Where, you know, you have all these backlog cases and you have quite a few sort of targets around how many cases we need to get through. So some of the more complex cases are often, you know, remaining in the queue longer than their, than their natural yeah. shelf life. That's right. Uh, yeah. You know, so you get a lot of that happening and yeah. that's everywhere in call centers everywhere. Right. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's difficult. Sometimes we're just oftentimes we're actually measuring the wrong things. 
Yeah. Really. Yeah. I have a colleague who's working on a research project on uh, predictive analytics, mm-hmm. who's trying to A, determine, you know, what is it that defines good performance or superior performance, if you will, and then B, what are some of those data correlations to some of the assessment processes mm-hmm. to get down to it? Because, you know, we're fairly confident that in our interviewing and recruiting and other processes that we use to recruit people into into jobs or to move them around through jobs that we're not always you know, on point and what it is that we're assessing. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah. counter to equity and diversity and um, changing the culture because what happens is the data that you have is on optimization of people who are right. already within the job. And so if you want to change who the, the sort of hiring profile, then if you're unlike or if no one like you has ever been recruited into that job and performed and given data, yeah. then, then you're not going to get chosen. Um, That's right. And I'm glad that his scope is around assessing the tools and not <laughs> the people. Because even just thinking about as, as you're talking, I'm like, yeah, I see what you're saying about this enormous responsibility mm-hmm. that we all have to actually, you know, serve the hundred, I'm sorry, serve the hundred <laughs> percent. I'm apologizing to the listeners because I'm speaking with my hands and our executive producer is giving me the evil eye. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Okay. There's many other um, cybersecurity. Uh, we have a lot of uh, national defense people. So if you look at the false positives in terms of um, the security risks, et cetera, it tends to be the individuals that are un- anomalous and outliers. So you have a lot of false positives. Same with... CRA tax audits, um, the people that are unlike other individuals, which tends to be people with disabilities or um, because, of course, you have a very different asset portfolio and different costs. Mm. They tend to get flagged and um, are uh, get audited much more, (laughs) et cetera. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of examples. And we take the data and we don't uh, we don't think about where the data comes from. So. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, thank thank you. you. (laughs) You've been listening to Innovate On Demand, brought to you by the Canada School of Public Service. Our music is by Grapes. I'm Todd Lyons, producer of this series. Thank you for listening.